The New Testament makes the most staggering claim. New Testament writers say that there's only one way you can get to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. That is a staggering claim when you think about it. Some years ago, when I was in Jerusalem, I went down to the Western Wall and met there with some of my friends in the Jewish community. I said to them, what do you make of this man? It was on a Friday evening, the Sabbath had just commenced. And I said to some of the rabbis, what do you make of Jesus? We believe that he's the only way. In fact, one prominent Jew said, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What do you make of this person? They said, he's an imposter, obviously. He's a fraud. And so here is a large segment of the world, people whom we greatly respect. We call them the people of the book, the special people, the chosen people. And they say that this man who himself was a Jew, a Jewish carpenter, and later on an itinerant preacher, they say he is simply a fraud, a deceiver. Then I've spoken to some of my Muslim friends in the Middle East, and I say, what do you make of this person, Jesus? They say he is a wonderful person. He is a magnificent person. How do you see him? We see him as a great prophet. Truly a prophet sent from God. Do you see him as the savior of the world? No, of course not. But we see him as a very good, earnest person. A prophet. Then we go, we ask the world of the cynic, the unbeliever, the atheists, what do you make of this man, Jesus? The atheist will say, well, most likely he never existed. And he's simply a man who went around, got a big crowd, and uh, this is the best we can say about him. He said some good things, but he certainly wasn't what you think he was. And then we go to the Buddhists. And we say to the Buddhists, what do you make about this man Jesus, this Jewish carpenter? The Christians say he's the son of God. What do you make of him? They say he is like a Buddha. He's an enlightened person. He is truly a great person, but he's nothing more and nothing less. And then you go to the vast majority of the Indian population who are Hindus. And you say, what do you make of this person, Jesus? And they say, we make of him what Gandhi made of him. What did Gandhi make of him? Gandhi said he was a wonderful person. He was an enlightened person. He was a peacemaker. He was an ideal man. But that is all. Is he the savior of the world? No, not the savior of the world. So the question we're going to ask today is, is he the only way? If we say yes, he is the only way, you must recognize that is one of the most dogmatic assertions that a person can make. 
to say that the rest of the world is wrong. We say, we hope in Christian charity, that the vast world of the Orthodox Jew and the liberal Jew is wrong as far as salvation is concerned. That's what we're saying, if he's the only way. We're saying that the Muslims are completely wrong. We're saying that the Hindus, with all of their good teachings, are completely wrong. We're saying that the Muslims, the vast numbers of the Muslims, many of them wonderful people, we're saying that as far as salvation is concerned, they're wrong. And we Christians are the only ones who are right as far as Jesus is concerned. If we claim this, then we should claim it with intensity. But if we claim it with intensity and with conviction, we need to have some strong arguments to defend our point of view. You cannot say, as far as Christ is concerned, as far as Jesus is concerned, that every person is right. Because every person cannot be right. Is this important? Yes, it is. Because the teaching of the Bible seems to be emphatic that he is the only way into the presence of God. He is the door. And so today, I want you to notice some amazing passages in the Bible that indicate that Jesus existed before he was born and through the Old Testament prophets he predicted the great events of his life. If this can be proven then indeed he is the Messiah of the world, the Messiah of the Jews and the hope of all men. I want you please if you don't mind to take a copy of the Bible today and come with me to John chapter 17 and verses 3 to 5. And these are the words of Jesus. John chapter 17, verses 3 to 5. This, of course, is found in the New Testament in the fourth gospel. It is page 765 in the New Testament. Page 765 in the New Testament. And I'm reading from the New International Version. I want you, please, if you don't mind, to turn to the passages with me so that you'll see the force of the arguments. John chapter 17, verses 3 to 5. Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said, If you want to be saved, then they must, you must know the only true God, and you must know Jesus Christ whom he sent. Verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus said that before the world began, we don't know how far back we're going to go. Are we going to go back to the point of creation, the cosmos? Are we to go back this vast distance in time because he says he was there with the Father? 
When you read other passages in the New Testament, the Bible teaches that the prophets of the Old Testament, listen carefully to this, the prophets of the Old Testament were filled with the same Spirit of Christ. That the Spirit of Christ lived in their lives and the Spirit of Christ inspired their writings. If this is so, then Jesus, inspiring the prophets by his own Spirit, when he was alive with the Father, wrote his own life story before he was born. If this can be proved, then here we have overwhelming proof, my dear friends, that Jesus is not just another Buddha. He is not just another prophet. He is not just another great man, as Gandhi said, but he is the one who is completely unique. He is the Messiah and the Son of God. Therefore, I want to say to my friends watching on television on our 350 stations across North America, please look at the evidence. I want to say to my Jewish brother, please look at the evidence. I want to say to my Muslim brother, please look at the evidence. I want to say to my atheistic brother, please look at the evidence. And the Buddhists and everybody else, notice these remarkable claims that are made and made thousands of years ago concerning this man whom we call Jesus. Would you please come with me now to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And I want you to notice these remarkable prophecies that predicted everything about him. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And it's a pleasant sound to hear the pages of the Bible being turned. It is page 658 in the Old Testament. 658. Please turn to the passages. 658. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. This passage is about two and a half thousand years old. But you Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This ancient prophet said that the Messiah would come from a little town, just a tiny little town, by the name of Bethlehem. The question is, did he? His parents lived up north in Galilee in a town by the name of Nazareth. And there came a great census taking in the Roman Empire. And everybody had to leave his own town and go to the place where he was born or where he was registered. And so Mary and Joseph have to go back to their hometown, and that is Bethlehem. And so they leave the town of Nazareth, where they have their business, and they travel that large distance by donkey or by horse, and they come to this little town of Bethlehem, and as soon as they get to the town, Mary feels the pains of the baby about to be born. And history tells us they could find no place for him to stay except a place where they had cattle and sheep. And there Jesus is born 
in a little place at the back of the inn in this little town of Bethlehem. It was predicted and it came to pass. I want you to notice many of these prophecies. The next one is found in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. As we systematically go on an exploration of discovery, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, page 488. Page 488, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Page 488, therefore, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Listen carefully to this. Because this is a subject where you cannot have three or four different viewpoints. Listen carefully to this. The Old Testament said 750 years BC that there would come a person in the world who would be born in a most unusual way. He'd be born of a virgin. When you go to the New Testament, what is the New Testament? People say, well, we, some of us don't accept the New Testament. The New Testament is a genuine historical document. You can't dismiss it. It is not a fraudulent document. It's genuine history. And the history of the New Testament says that there was a man by the name of Joseph and he was engaged to be married to this beautiful girl. She was a peasant girl. Her name was Mary. And after they were engaged, he discovered that she was pregnant. And because he did not want to embarrass his future wife, he thought the best thing for me to do is simply to break off the engagement and then she's not going to be disgraced and I'm not going to be embarrassed. But then the New Testament says, a heavenly visitor came and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary to you as your wife because that which is conceived in her womb is not from any man. The Holy Spirit has come upon her as it was predicted. And that which will be born in her will not be just any little baby boy, but he will be called the Holy One, the Son of God. What do we do with these things? Are we to say this story is fraudulent? Or are we to say, yes, it was prophesied, and what is more, the prophecy came to pass. Born in Bethlehem, but born in a most extraordinary way. His mother had never known a man. She was a virgin. When Jesus was born, she was a virgin. One chance and what? A thousand, 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 million? The Bible says it happened because it was predicted. We're told even the very place, not only where he would be born, but where he would be raised. Would you please come over here to the Old Testament 
to this passage back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 1, 2, and 6, and I will give you the page number when I find it. Isaiah chapter 9, and it's page 489 in the Old Testament. 489. Persevere, my friend, in finding the passages, please. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, 2, and 6, page 489. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. That's good news. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. What is it speaking of? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look at me. Born in a little itsy-bitsy town, just a few thousand people, just a tiny little town of no consequence, born in Bethlehem, born out of the course of normal events, born by a peasant girl, and when she bears him, she is a virgin. And then it says something is going to happen which is going to be wonderful for the people in Galilee. The gloom is going to be lifted because a great light is going to dawn in Galilee. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Why? Because unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do not patronize him. Do not say that you can believe the Old Testament. If you cannot accept this verse that says that a person who would come, this person who would come into the world, born of a virgin, would be the everlasting God. And so Gandhi, it's not good enough for Gandhi and my Hindu friends to say, behold him a great man. No, don't behold a great man. Behold a deluded man. If you are true, because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I say to my beloved Jewish friends who are watching the telecast, my Muslim friends, my Hindu friends, what are you going to do with these verses? Are we going to say, we will close off this subject, we will not talk about this subject, this is an embarrassing subject, this is politically incorrect. Or shall we say, we will look honestly at the evidence. You know, after his birth, 
He went down into the land of Egypt to escape the wrath of the king. But then his parents brought him back. But they didn't stay in Bethlehem. They fled to a little place by the name of Nazareth in Galilee. And then when he started 30 years later to preach and teach and heal, the people sitting in darkness saw a great light. And that's the light that the world needs to see today. It was even predicted when he would commence his ministry. We talked about this, was it last night or the night before in our series of meetings? In the prophecies of Daniel, you don't need to turn to this. But in the prophecies of Daniel chapter 9, a prophecy that has been outlawed by certain religious groups because they say of the fearful implications, we are told that he would be appearing in his own land 483 years after the decree to restore and to build Jerusalem, which happened under the great man Artaxerxes Longjamanus, who made a decree that Jerusalem should be restored. And the prophet Daniel, writings 500, 600 BC, said there would be 483 years after this decree to restore the temple and the broken down city of Jerusalem. This occurred. The decree in 457, you add on the 483 years and it brings you through to 27 AD. And in the year 27 AD, Jesus, according to the writings of Luke in chapter 3 and all of that chapter, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which was 27 AD, Jesus appeared in his own land and said the time is fulfilled. What do we do with this? Do we say, when we look at these prophecies, we will not read them. We will not discuss them. We will say that everybody is a good person. That every person can be the Messiah. That every person is a Buddha. That every road leads home to the kingdom of God. And all we need to do is be sincere. That, of course, is the attitude that afflicts our age. That everyone is right and no one can tell a lie. The truth cannot be discovered and truth cannot be defined. And if truth cannot be defined, then what is a lie? It doesn't exist. That is the age. This is the, this is the climate of our age. It is not the climate of the Bible. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so from a multitude of voices, they say, what bigotry, this is intolerance, then so be it. It is the truth. There's no other name. Why is there no other name? Because there is no other name that fulfills the prophecies. For all those wonderful people, and I, I appeal to my Jewish brothers and sisters who are earnestly, many of them God-fearing, devout people who are waiting for the coming of the Messiah, I say to you, your own prophet said that he came almost 2,000 years ago. Your own prophet, the prophet Daniel said. We have today, as we noticed a couple of nights back, fearful tension in the Middle East. Hatred. Maybe a third world war will come out of it. I want to tell you, the third world war can only be averted when people recognize that the Messiah has come. Muslims, Jews, and Christians, and worship him. 
in the person of Jesus. But don't say this is politically incorrect. Look at the evidence and let us be honest. I want you to notice one of the greatest of all the prophets, the great Jewish prophet. Let me say no Christian should ever be anti-Semitic because I hold in my hands a Jewish book and this Jewish book proves the authenticity of the Jewish Messiah. We should never be anti-Semitic because the Christ that we serve is a Jew. And the Blessed Virgin Mary that is vener venerated by all of the Roman Catholics is a Jewess. Every writer of the Bible was a Jew, with the possible exception of Luke. So we are not here to cast aspersions, but we are here to say, let us be honest and consider the evidence. If this man really wrote his own life story before he was born, don't patronize him and don't patronize me by saying he was a nice guy, but he was either a fraud or he was God. I want you to notice Isaiah 53, this great messianic chapter. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. It is page 523. The great prophet Isaiah. Please notice it. Page 523, Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He is referring to the leaders of his own nation. Jesus, born in the heart of the Jewish nation, according to the prophecies of the Jews, came to his own. But because of politics and pride, the hierarchy rejected him. If Messiah could have arisen that was acclaimed by all, that he would not have been the Messiah. The religious leaders of his own day, like religious leaders today everywhere, were so steeped in tradition that they rejected him and they were afraid they would lose control and power over the people. He was a threat to them. Who inspired Isaiah the prophet? The New Testament says the Spirit of Christ who is in them. And thus through Isaiah, this man predicted his own rejection. It was predicted that he would be betrayed by a friend. Would you come over here to Psalm 41 and verse 9? Psalm 41 and verse 9. This goes back about 3,000 years. Page 401, 401, halfway through the Bible, Psalm 41 and verse 9. The prophecy is given, even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Was it fulfilled? Yes, it was. The last night before he went to the cross, he was eating with his disciples. 
and a man whom he had helped and lifted up and a man whom he had fostered and, and blessed and disciples. While he was eating bread with his master, this man had plotted his master's death. His name lives in infamy. The very mention of the word Judas causes us to shudder with revulsion. It was predicted he would be betrayed by a friend, and he was. It was predicted by the prophet Zechariah that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. What is more, not only would he be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, but the 30 pieces of silver would be used to buy a potter's field of all things, a potter's field. Judas went to the priests and said, what will you give me if I betray him unto you? What a, what a dreadful character to sell the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. So the priest said, well, would you accept 30 pieces? Yes, give it to me. And then after the Lord was taken by the hierarchy with the help of the Romans, Judas ran back to the priests, filled with remorse, with 30 pieces of tarnished gold, tarnished silver, flung them down in the temple and said, I have sinned in that I betrayed innocent blood. They said, who cares? We've got him. But then the priests said, so that we don't defile ourselves because it is blood money. We won't put it into the tithe or into the treasury. We will buy a potter's field. Every word of the prophecy came to pass, such as in the book of Psalms it says he would be accused by false witnesses. False witnesses have testified against me. The ancient prophet said in Psalm 45, 35 verse 11, when he was on trial before his persecutors, they brought him false witnesses to tell lies about him. I want you to notice something else which is quite remarkable. Would you come over here to the book of Isaiah chapter 53? Another one of these magnificent prophecies, page 523. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. Isaiah 53 verse 7. Page 523. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It was predicted that when the Messiah would be betrayed, and accused, he'd be silent. The Roman governor turned to him and said, talk to me. Don't you know I've got power to release you? The power to crucify you. He said, you could not have this power unless it were given to you from above. Therefore he who delivered you, delivered me unto you. That's the greatest sin all through his trial except for a few words he was silent 
It was predicted long before he was born by the prophets that he inspired that he would be beat up by the crowd. Would you notice this? Chapter 50, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Come back a page. Page 521. Isaiah 50, verse 6. 521. Notice it in the Bible. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Can you think about this? That God Almighty sent into the world a part of himself. This person who was called in scriptures Yahweh Elohim, the self-existent God, became man. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And then after this kangaroo court, the mob, led by the religious leaders, are let loose on him. When he is whipped, the lash comes around his body and the, the ends of the whip tangle in his beard. So tangles in his beard and the Roman soldier waits for a moment until it tangles and then pulls it back, tears off his beard. Who was this man? Then they go up to him spit in his face, kick him. He knew all about it. He was not surprised. He stood there in anticipation of it all because he had already written it down. Don't dare say to me, he is just another man. He is, as the Jew says, a humbug, a fraud, a deceiver. He is either what the orthodox man says or else he is the Messiah. But he's either or. Nothing somewhere in between. I am forced to believe that he fulfilled the prophecies. I do not want to be like the religious leaders of his day who did not want to see the consequences of belief because it would be so discomforting and so embarrassing because that is why they rejected him. Crucifixion was used by the Romans. It was an infernal device to prolong life and to cause the greatest suffering. We have no concept of the agony of crucifixion because when a person was hung on the cross, it made it almost, well, it made it most difficult to breathe. One had to reverse the process. You had to gasp. You had to fight for every breath. On the cross, most likely he was tied to the cross with rope to hold him on, but then his hands twisted down and nailed 
His feet crossed over and a big Nile, Roman Nile, driven through his feet. There he hung with his face bleeding, with his beard torn off, the skin raw, and his back lacerated and bloodied and terribly, terribly painful. Hanging on the cross, naked, perhaps with a loincloth. The cross, not very high, not high and lifted up as we like to think, but hanging on the cross, just low enough so a person could go by and spit in his face or else physically abuse him. Who is this man? That is why today he still remains the most controversial person in the world. In American elections, all the politicians talk about God and everybody nods their heads. The New Ages, yes, that's fine. It's the God in you, that's what he's talking about. God, oh, it's the God out here. Everybody believes in God. But say the name Jesus. The hackles go up. The politically correct columnists, they say, oh, he's talking about someone who divides us. Yes, he does divide us. And truth will always divide us. So we're not here to give you some platitudes and say everybody is right, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Jews, the Christians, everybody, the atheists, we're all right and we're all going to heaven because we're not. There is only one way. I get sick of political correctness which is simply a form of censorship whereby people say we are Americans we believe in freedom of religion but you're not allowed to talk about this 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 what hypocrisy what a repudiation of everything America stands for political correctness is no better than the old Nazism and the old communism So we're not here to say everybody is going to be saved because everybody smiles sweetly and everybody is nice. We're here to say today that there is only one way of salvation and that is through Jesus Christ whose Messiahship is proven by the writings of the Jewish Bible. That's what we are here to say whether people like it or dislike it. That is not our intention today to be politically correct. Our intention today is to be correct. Please look at Psalm 22, verse 16. Now, the Romans were great ones for crucifixion. They didn't crucify back in the days of uh, David. Page 392, and David wrote these words, 1000 BC. Psalm 22, verse 16. Jesus writes these words through the prophet David. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. What did people think about this? A thousand BC, it was predicted that they'd take the Messiah and they'd pierce his hands and his feet. He fulfilled this prophecy. 
Come with me quickly to Isaiah 53. Let me show you the greatest of the prophets. Greatest of the Messianic prophets. Isaiah 53. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. Page 523, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was predicted that the Messiah would become the bearer of the sin of the world, the sin of the Pharisee, the sin of the Jew, the sin of the Christian, the sin of the Hindu, the sin of the Buddhist, the sin of the Muslim, the sin of the world would be laid upon him and this would take from him his life. He did it on the cross he bore the sin of the world and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Pharisees said, He is forsaken by God. He cannot be the Messiah. The fact that he cried those words was the greatest proof that he was the Messiah. Because he was the Savior. We're told in David, Psalm 22, that they would cast lots for his clothes. They did. He had a seamless garment. When they sat down and they gambled, they said, let's not tear it up. It's made of one piece, a seamless garment. Let's not tear it up. So they sat there and they gambled over the only thing he ever owned, his robe, and fulfilled Bible prophecy. Jesus, through the prophet Daniel, David, Psalm 34, said that even though he may have a spear thrust in his side, none of his bones would be broken. Did you know that? They broke the legs of the criminals who were crucified with him, but they did not break his bones. Would you come over here to Psalm 34, verse 20? I say to you, what will you do with this man? Psalm 34 and verse 20. Page 397, Psalm 34, verse 20. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. So when they came to break his legs, they said, look, he's dead. They did not break his legs. It was predicted he would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53 says, and with the rich in his death. And he was buried in the tomb of a wealthy man. It was predicted that he would die between sinners. It says in Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. And there between two dying thieves, he hung. It was predicted that when he died, he would not die for good. He would be resurrected. Come with me to Psalm 16 verses 10 and 11, my dear friends. Psalm 16, 10 and 11, page 
3.88. I've only shown you just a few of the prophecies today. Just a few of the prophecies, I tell you. Psalm 16, verse 10 and 11. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made me to know the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Writing 3,000 years ago, this man, Jesus, said, my body will not decay. It is historical that he died on a Friday, not on a Wednesday, as those who don't understand biblical chronology teach, on a Friday. He did not rise as some who do not understand biblical chronology on a Saturday. He arose on the first day of the week. He was there in the tomb for those hours. But there was no decay. The Bible says his body would not decay. Unlike Lazarus, the body of Lazarus was decaying but not the body of Jesus because the hand of God was over the body. And on the Sunday morning, the spirit within the body of Christ heard the voice of the spirit without and by the power that was within him because he was almighty God, he walked out of the tomb. No other man has ever done that. Don't come to me and say, yes, we like your religion. We like your Bible. We think you're wonderful. And we think Jesus is a good man. Don't talk to me like that, please. I cannot stand it. You may be politically correct, but you're wrong. The New Testament is an authentic document. It's far more reliable than Time magazine or Newsweek or the prophets who predict elections. <laughs> this book was written not by the scum of the earth but by the princes of men. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John Honest-hearted, simple-hearted, decent men who didn't live in an age of political correctness, who knew what right was and knew what wrong was, and who believed it with such an intensity that almost all of them died martyrs' deaths rather than deny what they believed. Most of us have got such a wimpy faith that if it rains, we don't go to church. That shows the depth of our convictions this deep. We are great in this society on words and talking, but most of it is hypocrisy. Amen. But these men back there believe so much that their lives and their statements of affirmation went to the ultimate and like Peter, they were crucified rather than give up. Most people today will give up for nothing. 
These people would not give up for anything. And these people wrote down the story. They saw him with their own eyes. They felt the hands. They saw the scars. They saw the mark in the side. They saw the marks on his forehead. They said, we have seen, we have handled, we know. They said, we don't care what people think, we know. They wrote it down. And our wonderful Jewish prophets of the Old Testament, thank God for the house of Israel. They wrote down and kept it preserved. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls last night. They kept it all preserved. The place of his birth, Bethlehem. Where he would be brought up, Nazareth, yes. The time of his ministry, 27 AD. Even the year of his crucifixion, Daniel 9, 25 to 27, 31 AD. The means of his death, crucifixion. The price of his betrayal, 30 pieces of silver. That he would be betrayed by one of his friends, Judas. Over and over again. That he would bear the sin of the world. Prophecy after prophecy. None of his bones to be broken. Beat up by the scum of Jerusalem. And that he would be raised from the dead. And there are independent witnesses. You may not like to consider the evidence. You may say, it goes against my culture. It goes against my nationality. It goes against this. It goes against that. I say, I don't care what it goes against. And let me tell you something else what it goes against. It goes against God. Amen. Because this is truth. And there is no place here for compromise. Not all are right. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And therefore, I present to you today the incomparable Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, the Savior of the world, your Savior and mine. Glory be to God. Now, I want you to kneel down. We're going to pray together. Dear Father in heaven, help us to realize today that we're not called to political correctness but we're called to truth and righteousness. And as we look into your word today, the writings of the great prophets of the Old Testament, we can see amazing evidence 
that proves without the shadow of a doubt that the little Jewish baby that was born in Bethlehem that grew up in Nazareth who preached and taught for three and a half years and who went to the cross is the Son of God. He's not another Buddha. Oh, he's not a fraud. He's not a confidence man. He is wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In this audience today, we are united in one great truth, the truth of Jesus. Some of us here today come from Judaism. Some of us here today are Jews. Lots of us are Gentiles. Some of us are from America. Some of us are white. Some of us are black. Some of us are brown. But all of us today are believers in Jesus. We thank you that around the world today, multitudes of Jews after the flesh and Gentiles after the flesh are coming to a realization that the only hope for this old world is the Prince of Peace. We know the world doesn't want him because he comes with uncompromising convictions. The world doesn't want him. The world wants liars and cheats and politicians who will say whatever people want to hear. Promise them the world. The 30 pieces. But we want him. We want him. Because he is the only person in this crazy mixed up world who makes any sense at all. We want him. And today, we accept him. And publicly, we proclaim him the one, the true, the living Messiah, the Prince of Peace, God of very God from all eternity, the Savior of the world, most importantly, our Savior. And so today, we lift up our hearts to you and we lift up our hands by a public acknowledgement that we believe in Jesus. Amen. Would you raise your hand today and say, I believe in Jesus. I will follow Jesus. Yes, indeed. Oh, God, take these upraised hands, these upraised hearts. Bless them, oh, God, today with an unshakable faith unswerving convictions and everlasting life. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.